0: Good morning and welcome. My name is David Epstein. I am currently the Robert Zinman Visiting Scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. My day job is teaching law and other stuff at the University of Richmond. I'm pleased that you've joined us for this discussion of educational debt and how bankruptcy and educational debt play out against the other. I'm pleased that participating in this podcast today are two law professors who have done a lot of work and a lot of thinking on this subject of of education alone. Dan Austin of the Northeastern University Law School and Marcus Cole of the Stanford Law School. Uh, There's been a lot of attention of late about educational debt generally and the dischargeability of educational debt more specifically. Uh, but uh, happily, uh, both of the participants in today's podcast have been thinking about uh, this topic uh, for a long time. Uh, Dan, you've not only been thinking about this, but you've been uh, doing some empirical research. Uh, can you tell us about your empirical research?
1: Let me mention, though, if 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 I could, why this became engaging for me. Um, I started teaching in 2009. Prior to that time, I'd practiced law for a long time, um, primarily business bankruptcy and commercial law, and primarily on the creditor side, not really dealing a whole lot with consumer stuff. Then started teaching in 2009, and... Marcus, I know this will resonate with you, but, um, you know, began to first get whisperings and then stories of of concerns that students have about their debt load. And, you know, I was busy enough in my practice, I never thought of that. Um, And then you get to talking to people, and you realize not just law school students, but undergrads, some of them are graduating with huge debt loads. Uh, Sorry, huge debt loads. And, um, you know, you you then think in your mind how much they'll earn, what their disposable income is, and and you begin to get a sense that for many of these people, it's not necessarily feasible that they're going to pay it off and and have the, you know, the type of life and whatnot that we've often come to hope that many Americans can have. and then, you know, you look at the published numbers, and and, and they're they're borne out by the published numbers, and, and some of their stories grab you. So uh, that's kind of why I started getting interested in this, and I've done both, you know, empirical research, meaning a lot of research on PACER, looking at consumer cases and consumer uh, student loan debt loads, um, and then I've also gone out in the field, if you will, and connected personally with, you know, former students and, and people who have filed bankruptcy, who 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 don't, but still are, you know, have these awful debt loads. And for me, with more of my business and creditor background, I got to say this on a personal level. This is becoming, you know, rather compelling. So I've done my part with education or with with working by having some students do a lot of research for me, and we've got about three thousand or so pacer cases um what we're finding is that say for cases filed in 2011 something on the nature of about 22.4 percent of these cases these are consumer bankruptcy cases sevens and thirteens have uh... student education debt as a component of their bankruptcy and the average Amount of debt for these cases is somewhere around twenty-nine thousand dollars. uh... S- standard figures from the Department of Education are something like average student debt load is twenty-five thousand or so for students graduating. But of, of those in bankruptcy, it's about twenty, close to twenty-nine thousand. Um, and our data shows those numbers are creeping up uh, over the last several years. In in two thousand ten, for example we had about 21% of debtors in bankruptcy with student loan debt, average uh, debt amount of roughly $24,600. Um, and, again, these numbers have been creeping up. Um, I'll tell you another interesting thing, to me at least, from uh, the data we've done is, um, y- you know, there's uh, you can get federally guaranteed loans and then totally private loans. It's it's numbers have it right now that about seventy seven percent of all outstanding student loan debt is federally guaranteed. Um but of debtors who file bankruptcy with student loan debt, uh, of of by far percentage of their student loan debt is private. So that this suggests that people with Private student loan debt, or a large percentage of it, are far more likely to file bankruptcy. And, and I can give you numbers, um, just an example or two. In, in Wisconsin in 2010, Eastern District, um, of our sample of uh, 50 debtors who filed bankruptcy, consumer debtors who filed bankruptcy that year, government debt totaled 97,300. Private debt, was 110,435 um and and I could give you some more numbers like that so that bankruptcy is is impacted f- far more by private uh student loan debt than by public I'm still thinking of the implications of that but these are the some of the things the numbers are telling us I could get into heart-wrenching individual stories and there's many of them But my concern is that a lot of people, younger people, uh, something like 40% of all people under 30 now have student loan debt. These people are becoming an indentured generation that just won't be participating in the financial life of our country, won't own homes, won't get new cars. Um, And from a practical and a financial standpoint, this is a problem. So that's my short story.
0: Well, Dan, I know that in addition to the empirical work that you've done, uh, that, a, that a part of your research has been to survey the case law in sure. terms of what bankruptcy judges are doing when confronted with individual debtors with significant educational loan obligations. Yeah. Uh, what, if anything, do you see from the case law other than the Bruner test,
1: yeah. Well, everybody knows the Bruner test, and it's it's certainly uh, the most uh, certainly the majority test. But some other courts are doing different things. Um, for example, the Eighth Circuit has a what they refer to as the totality of the circumstances test, um, and basically they look at the debtor's ability to earn an income in the future and their current uh, reasonable and necessary business expenses, and then any other relevant items. Um, now, the f- the First Circuit hasn't the First Circuit itself hasn't particularly spoke hasn't directly spoken to this, but the First Circuit BAP has another form of a totality of the circumstances test, and they expressly reject prongs two and three of Bruner uh, in in Prong two of Bruner is that the the the, the debtor's state of circumstances.
0: I'm sorry, let me interrupt, Dan. For for, yeah. for any listeners that we might have, uh, perhaps that are listening because they have jobs that are media related, can you real, real quickly run through sure. Bruner? The
1: the Bruner test um, is is from a 1987 case in the Second Circuit, and it's been adopted by. Um, most of the circuits now, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, ninth, 10th, 11th. It has three prongs for a debtor to receive a discharge of educational debt under the, quote, undue hardship test in uh, Section 523A8 of the code. The three tests are, first of all, that the debtor cannot maintain, based on their current income and expenses, a, quote, minimal standard of living for the debtor and its dependents, that's the first prong. Second prong is that there's additional circumstances indicating that this state of affairs will continue for a significant portion of the repayment period, the repayment of the loan period. And three, that the debtor has made a good faith effort to repay the loan. And again, that is the majority rule. the The Third Circuit uh, Bankruptcy Appeals Panel has rejected two prongs, two and three of Bruner and uh simply looks to the totality of the circumstances and to determine whether the debtor really has a reasonable prospect of of paying it now and in the future. now, some judges in the first circuit actually have gone farther than that Judge feeney for example um uh, in in the bankruptcy code, there's section one o five which gives court equitable powers to uh you know, administer a case in the best interest of the debtor and the creditor. So, at least one judge in the First Circuit, uh, Massachusetts Bankruptcy Court, has has found that Section 105 allows her to give a, a partial discharge of the debt, so that if, if the debt is 30,000, she'll allow the debtor to discharge part of that. And there's one particular case where she explains that, and in that case, she required the debtor to go through the 25-year the forward income ten, contingent repayment plan for student loan debt, and then at the end of that, uh, the remaining amount of debt would be discharged, and then she, she did discharge a certain amount of that in the bankruptcy case. Uh, so there's hybrids of that, and other courts allow partial discharge as well, and they all cite Section 105A. Uh, the 6th circuit allows it uh some courts in the 10th and 11th circuit allows it um some other courts allow n- not partial discharge of a particular debt but if a debtor has several student loan debts some courts have allowed uh discharge of of say one of the debt but not other debts um that's definitely a majority view but there are a few qu- uh, i'm sorry minority view but there are a few courts that uh that do allow that
0: well, based on your your reading uh, of the cases, Dan, does that give you any ideas of of what perhaps judges can and should do that many judges are not doing within the construct of our existing statutory law?
1: Well, there's a you know there's a a grim phrase that we kind of um, sort of banter around, and it's from a case that in finding that a debtor may discharge debt, that the the debtor has to show what the court referred to as a certainty of hopelessness. And I have, I, I just have a, I'll admit a moral problem that we must insist that the debtor essentially live below the poverty line, not be able to fend for themselves and to prove that they'll have to do it for a very very long period of time before we'll consider discharging that debt um it it's it's almost another version of a debtor's prison or a sort of corporal punishment or psychological punishment um some of the debtors i've talked to i've asked them how can you how could you have gotten you know 150 200,000 dollars worth of student loan debt literally for music degrees or something like that. Um, and they say things like, you know, you could do it online, and if you needed 10000 for a semester, you could go online and literally in two minutes click and borrow it. And in some cases, some of these loans require the parent to sign on. The parent gives one e-signature, and then thereafter the student can Incur additional debt with the parent obligated and the parent never knowing it and I've talked to st- you know debtors who say you know I had no sophistication about this stuff came from a you know a background where I was never taught this stuff, and the money was so easy and I thought education was the way to everything, and you know these people just without understanding what they were doing got so much debt that they cannot pay off. I, I just think there's an appropriate way under the code to a- allow them to lead something of a normal life, which the, which many of them won't under the current situation.
0: Dan, are you in essence arguing for a partial discharge?
1: Well, I think you know there's a couple approaches. Here's one approach I've thought of. We all know that, like, if a debtor has a secured asset. Uh, in many instances, a lot, the code allows that asset or, or, or the balance of the loan securing that asset to be revalued to the actual amount, to, to the actual value of the asset. So if, if you owe a debt of 100000 secured by an asset that now has a fair market value of 20000 in some instances you can actually revalue the debt to 20,000, that's now the secured amount, and the rest is unsecured and could be discharged. You know, maybe that's a possible solution here, that, uh, you know, we could get a commercial analysis of the actual commercial value of, of a student debtor's portfolio. There's a secondary market that will readily value these things if If they owe a hundred thousand, but the secondary market would only value that that debt at say twenty thousand, why don't we make the twenty thousand not dischargeable and allow the other you know eighty thousand to be potentially dischargeable under schedule f as with any other unscheduled debt that that may be one way to do it um, Everybody's concerned about the abuse of one o five a under the code these these sort of amorphous equitable powers and and I understand that concern. Um, there just has to be a way where we don't indenture so many tens or hundreds of thousands of students. And and I think there's solutions through the bankruptcy code.
0: Well, then absent some sort of extremely creative use of Section 105, it sounds an awful lot like you're suggesting perhaps that we need to look to Congress instead of to the courts for a solution, and there's been some congressional consideration of the problem of educational loans. Uh, Congress is, is of course, mindful uh, of the kind of numbers that you're talking about and the kind of stories that you have alluded to, and and indeed uh, there's already been a a subcommittee holding hearings and and taking testimony. And and Marcus, I know that, that you testified before this Congressional subcommittee on this question. Uh, can you help us, starting with a, a summary of your testimony to the subcommittee?
2: Yes. Uh, so, well, first, thanks for having me. and
0: uh, Appreciate your participating.
2: Yeah. It's, I think it's a really important uh, uh, topic, and, um, and I think we've all heard uh, the stories uh, that uh, Dan has alluded to and uh I think well, we should all be concerned about uh, what's happening uh, in uh, this particular debt market in, uh, because I think it has um, implications for our entire economy. But it's because of uh, the importance of that credit market that I, um, I felt uh, that I should um, uh, uh, participate in the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, uh, hearings, and so um, uh, my uh, Primary concern is that we not uh, 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 cause a, a greater problem with our solution to the problem than uh, than uh, uh, the problem itself. Uh, and uh, my my uh, my principal concern is that we are lumping together um, uh, these uh, bad student loan scenarios uh, with a student loan. Market that has essentially been an effective engine for creating human capital over the last 30 years or so. Um, So, I I, I think uh, one of the things that we have to recognize, and what I uh, said in my Senate testimony, is that most student loans are good student loans. They are student loans that are made to people who are. uh, trying to build their human capital to to be able to be bigger and better contributors, uh, more productive contributors to society and to our economy. Um, the The problem is that student loans are a unique type of loan in our economy. They're unlike any other form of loan. We've secured loans that are backed by uh, uh, tangible assets or sometimes intangible assets Uh, But they're secured so that the the creditor knows that they have an asset that they can go to if uh, the debtor defaults. We also have a a large uh, debt market that's comprised of unsecured uh, debt where uh, credit card issuers and other lenders lend against not particular assets, but Um, uh, an income that's being generated by uh, uh, an individual or a company. Student loans are different from either of these two because student loans are essentially loans that are being made to people who have no current assets and no current income and are simply making the promise to be able to pay from their future income toward the loan that they're taking out today. And so that makes them uh, very, very different than other forms of unsecured uh, uh, debt. Uh, it's because of this borrowing against the future income that a student needs to be able to credibly commit to a, to a lender that they will, in fact, repay the loan. And it's for that reason that we have this exception to the discharge for student loans. In other words, we have the exception to discharge for, for student loans not because we want to punish students for borrowing, but because we want to make it possible for students to borrow in the absence of the of the exception to discharge, no lender is going to rationally extend themselves uh, or, or lend to to uh, uh, students, knowing that the student could simply walk away from uh, the loan. Now, the problem has uh, come in in that um, uh, Congress has in, in two thousand five expanded the exception to discharge not just to uh, uh, federally uh funded uh government uh uh, uh backed student loans, but also to private student loans. Uh and even that is not problematic because uh the, the existence of a private market is only an indication that uh the the, the government mar- uh the supply of loans was not adequate to, to meet uh demand. But <coughs> what's happened is that uh you have uh, uh over the last several years you've seen the development of these uh degree mills uh and, and some of them are not even issuing degrees but the, the the there are schools that are cropping up all over the country uh that have uh um uh, as their business model Um, uh, fairly loose or open admissions policies where they admit students and either themselves extend student loans to the students or in cooperation with a private lender extend student loans to students. The school will get the tuition immediately and the student who may or may not succeed in the program uh, will nevertheless be on the hook for the rest of their lives for the student loan uh, that was uh, uh, extended for them to get this uh, this education, which in the marketplace the education itself might have no value whatsoever. So you have a you have a type of fraud that's developed around this um, this the student loan program, and I think that uh, one of the dangers of reforming uh, our our student loan program to address this particular uh, type of fraud uh, is that uh, we are going to undermine the 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 vibrant and valuable uh, student loan market that has uh, that has been a, a really successful mechanism for developing human capital over the last thirty years in order to attack uh, this type of fraud now I think that there are ways to to um, more finely tune the reforms to get at this uh, uh, type of fraud without undermining uh, those credit markets um, and if we if we if we recognize that the the purpose of bankruptcy is to lower the cost of capital uh, uh, at the outset, we want to uh, create reforms that will protect that um, that effective and good student loan market uh, but doesn't allow for uh, this type of fraud uh, to take place now the the uh, stripped down solution that Dan mentioned is uh, uh, and basically what he's what he 's talking about is uh, to treat um, the development of human capital the same way we treat um, uh, tangible assets in a secured loan situation uh, one of the one of the values of that uh, type of approach. Uh, is that it uh, it forces both the lenders and the educators to take their um, their uh, position as lender and educator seriously um, because if you strip down the 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 loan to the value of the asset, then all of a sudden educators who are who are not providing an education that increases human capital are no longer going to be able to profit from this system because they run the risk of not being able to get a lender uh, to loan against an education that's not uh, truly uh, uh, valuable. Uh, And and, and likewise, lenders will now all of a sudden have to investigate the quality of the education that's being offered uh, because uh, if the loan becomes uh, uh, subject to strip-down, then you uh there's a possibility that they might not get repaid because of uh of uh strip down in uh bankruptcy and then all of a sudden you'll start to see more responsible uh lending practices with respect to these type of educational loans but it's critically important that we don't uh with a broad brush uh uh relax the bruner standard and make uh 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 uh, uh student loans generally dischargeable in bankruptcy and it's also critically important that we don't uh um uh eliminate the ex- uh, the exception to uh to uh dischargeability for student loans precisely because this is an incredibly important debt market for uh our economy and if if we were to allow for them to be uh widely or generally dischargeable um, we, would, we would essentially see a drying up of uh, credit in this particular uh, market.
0: But, Marcus, is there a middle ground between, and I don't know whether this is what Dan was advocating, is there a middle ground between where we are now in the case laws, as courts are reading Broomer, and a policy of saying educational loans are generally discharged? Uh, isn't there a, a great deal of gap in between those two positions? And, and Dan, are you perhaps simply arguing for, for for some movement or something closer to
2: a middle ground?
1: Um, well, you asked Marcus, and then you asked me. So, Marcus, you want to go? Or you want me to? Or?
2: No, you can go, Dan.
1: Okay. Here's uh, You know, something else that occurred to me. Some courts in the Eastern District of Wisconsin, in a Chapter 13 case... Are allowing the debtor's payments f- for the student loan debt to be scheduled uh, differently than unsecured debt. Unsecured debt is paid pro rata based on the debtor's uh, available, you know, d- disposable income, and then the remaining amount is discharged. Um, most courts require the debtor to lump student loan debts in that pool of unsecured debts so that will be be discharged or and just paid per rata except that at the end of the Chapter 13 period, uh this the debtor still has to pay the, the remaining amount of the student loan debt plus any interest that's accrued during the time. Some courts in uh, Wisconsin have allowed the debtor to continue the regular full payment of the student loan debt during Chapter thirteen, just mentioning that as an additional middle ground. Um, yeah, uh I, I think in 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 absence of anything better at the moment, uh, partial discharge based on the the d- judge's, you know, careful analysis of the debtor's situation, uh maybe better than nothing, uh, but I I think the Brunner test is too harsh. I mean, it it imposes a sentence on the debtor of of fairly severe poverty and anguish for a long period of time. Um, I just don't see that being consistent with what we're hoping for, um, but Marcus's point is very well taken. I, I honestly don't know that there's empirical evidence to say that, that, that the credit source for student loan debt will dry up, and I question whether it really will. But there's a lot of logic in his point, and it's you know it's a standard position as for why the, the debt. Should not be dischargeable, I mean students are untested on the credit markets and and private lenders at least are are making a risk and in investing in them so his his point is understandable uh, so i would I would like to think there's a middle ground
2: i I do think there's substantial middle ground, and in fact, I think there are certain areas where there shouldn't be any disagreement at all so for example, if the purpose of student loans is to uh, pro- uh, provide an avenue or a channel for uh, students to make a credible uh, commitment uh, of a pledge of future income uh, to a lender in order to be able to secure a loan. Um, If that's the purpose of, of uh, of the exception to discharge, then we can say that any student loan that is made on the basis of current assets or current income ought not to uh, enjoy that exception to discharge because the lender in, in that circumstance isn't taking a real risk uh, the way other student uh, student loan lenders are. So, for example, uh, student loans where the parent is co-signing the loan is not a loan that is against the pledge of future income. It's truly a loan against the parent's current assets or current uh, income. Likewise, any student loan that is uh, based on Uh, a a student's actual current income or requires immediate uh, uh, payment uh, based on current income is not a true student loan in the theoretical sense and therefore ought not to enjoy the exception to discharge. And if we uh, do away with those uh, uh, types of student loans, we start to chip away at um, the the fraud that's taking place uh, in uh, the market and then um, uh, to go further, I would endorse uh, a, a, a stripped-down approach like the one that Dan has um, uh, uh, mentioned, uh, although I would prefer not to see it uh, uh, happen through um, the exercise of equitable powers by Absolutely. Uh, bankruptcy judges. Absolutely. I would prefer to see a congressional uh, a solution that's a, across the board um, uh, that takes the discretion away from judges.
1: Absolutely.
0: And Marcus, I know that uh, you've suggested other possible solutions in your March 20, 2012 testimony. Uh, Marcus and Dan, I very much appreciate each of you uh, giving your time to this podcast. I know your comments have been helpful to me and I'm sure to other people that hear the podcast. Marcus, I know that your testimony is available online. Dan, is there any way that uh, people who are listening, who want to learn more about your empirical research, can uh, access it? Uh, is it at a publication stage, or?
1: It, It's not yet, but I anticipate having it available in a month, and I always intended to make the empirical data available. So the best I can tell you, David, right now is I think in about a month it'll be ready, at least in some form, for to to be more available.
0: Okay, and for now, people can contact you, Dan, at the Northeastern University Law School. Uh, Marcus, Dan, again, thank you very much for taking the time to participate. I'm grateful.
1: It's a pleasure. Thanks
2: for having me. Good to talk to you.